Hello, Marvelites. You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 501. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, agent of Doom and friend to all. Oh, I like that. Yeah, Doom and friend to all makes perfect sense. This is our special dungarees episode, 501 <laughs> Jeans. <laughs> 501! Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That Oh, man, that took me back. Yeah, it's, it's all I could ever think about when I see the number 501. Um, it's fine. It's fine. We are here, and we're going to tell you all about what's happening this week in Marvel that we're super hyped about from games, comics, movies, TV, you know, whatever. Uh, Lorraine, you and I, we got to hang out a little bit this past weekend. That was great. Oh, my God. It was the best. I got to hang out with Catherine Grace. Mm-hmm. I got to feed her some potato salad, so I was pretty stoked, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Uh, it was it was really nice, real yeah. human interaction. It's a fun thing seeing seeing pals and and just spending time together. It was good. Oh, I got some great Marvel Legends in this week. I got Maestro, which is a big boy. Big boy. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'm calling it now. This is gonna be a weird one because I am a little sleep deprived. Uh-huh. So I don't know. It's gonna be a week. <laughs> That's right. Uh, And it's going to be a great month because it's Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. All right. Let's get into some stuff because I think it happened right around the time that 500 dropped last Mm -hmm. week. Uh, We had a big update for Marvel Studios Moon Knight. Yeah. Oscar Isaac released an image with the phrase, we are Moon Knight, revealing he's going to be joining Marvel Studios Moon Knight coming only to Disney Plus as Mark Spector, a.k.a. Moon Knight. And I just want to read the the flavor text here so that you guys can know about all that is this awesome upcoming series. So, the Marvel Studios original series for Disney Plus centers on the character Mark Spector, a.k.a. Moon Knight, a complex vigilante who suffers from disassociative identity disorder. These multiple personalities who live inside him are distinct characters in the series and will appear against a backdrop of Egyptian iconography. The action adventure series created for Disney Plus is directed by Mohamed Dieb. I'm so excited for the series. Yeah. I When I saw We Are Moon Knight, I got very excited just mm-hmm. because it's really embracing all that is Moon Knight, which I think is really, really awesome. I just, Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight seems so great and it's Mm going to be so there's so many ways it can go and like and i don't mean in like oh it's like it's going to be great but the ways that this show can oh yeah can take the character and 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 that sort of like background i don't even know what's going to happen i'm very excited for it yeah, I always love it when, you know, I saw so many people when they announced Marvel Studios Moon Knight, people being like, oh my gosh, Oscar Isaac would be so amazing in this. And then it came true. So that's always my fave. <laughs> yeah, there is a Rolling Stone article that was released this week. It's a really neat oral history of Marvel Studios WandaVision. And in there, there's a ton of great little tidbits and it goes through from the the inception of the series to the filming the the last you know bits post covid and like all kinds of things and one of the conversation pieces was Tayona Paris talking about how fans were telling her you would make a great Monica Rambeau and so she was like checking out Monica Rambeau she was like oh yeah this character is amazing and all this other stuff and then like how it all came to pass and how she auditioned and read for a part and realized like it was Monica when like, you know, she started getting it and she like broke down in tears uh, because she was so emotional and excited for it and what that meant and the importance of Monica and the MCU. And, you know, now we're going to have Marvel Studios, the Marvels, and it's 
man, that's just one piece of that article. And there, there's really great stuff in there about, you know, filming lots of amazing stuff with Lizzie Olsen and Paul Bettany, just talking about their experiences and, and working through how they feel about things and some funny bits and some sad bits. And it's just, I love a good oral history. That one knocked it out. That's the best. Also the best coming mm -hmm. up so soon, Marvel Studios Loki. It kicks off June 9th only on Disney+. Plus. That's a Wednesday for anybody mm -hmm. whose internal clock is set to Marvel Studios uh, series on Fridays. Set your clock back to Wednesday. <laughs> it's less than a week away now, which is super awesome. Um, and of course, you should head over to Marvel.com if you have not been watching all of the awesome videos and checking out all the cool posters. There's a ton of really, really great stuff. And there's some stuff on Disney Plus to get you into the series as well. Yeah, Marvel Studios Legends Loki, good primer, of course, you know, to, gives you the story of Loki and also all the other films from Marvel Studios. You, you can go back and rewatch them. There's a lot of really fun stuff to to dig through. I can't believe it's almost here. Yeah. It's it's wild. And, you know, if you're excited about Marvel Studios Loki, maybe stick around for next week. We're going to have a really cool episode with uh, Mr. Tom Hiddleston. We'll get into that more yeah. later on so watch marvel studios legends loki only on disney plus right now and get ready for next week yeah 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 uh also did you see that photo lorraine i'm assuming that you are referring to taika waititi's super spicy pick <laughs> of him and uh chris hemsworth on set for marvel studios thor love and thunder looking so cool looking like icons that's that was a full God. icon photo they're in costume they have like a super 70s glam rock kind of feel to them but chris hemsworth's arms are it's so crazy. big it's, it's crazy <laughs> i if he flexes the ground will shake like you look at that and it's just that's how he got the job ryan Oh my gosh. It's amazing. <laughs> he just shook the ground with his biceps. <laughs> He's like, here, watch this. Clunk, 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 clunk. That's the sound of biceps flexing. Honestly, it's really, really impressive what actors put themselves yeah. through to look the part for these roles because, listen, Marvel superheroes are larger than life, quite mm -hmm. literally. And also, Chris Hemsworth is like 6'4, six, 6'5. Six, he is an enormous person <laughs> yeah. but but it is truly super impressive um they did wrap production on marvel studios thor love and thunder i cannot wait to watch when it comes out in 2022 which is not that far away anymore yeah we're we're almost halfway through 2021 as we've we've talked about many times the back half of 2021 is going to be chock-a-block full of amazing stuff and then we're going to roll right into 2022 oh but also this week the internet is so sweet because mm. June 1st was Tom Holland's birthday, and it was so fun to just see a million Spider-Man gifts. Happy birthday, Tom Holland. Happy birthday, Tom Holland. Um, yeah, well, well, this year, we're also getting a new Spider-Man film, which is wild. Yes, Marvel Studios' Spider-Man No Way Home coming to theaters December 17th of this year. I can't believe it. Can't wait. Oh, also, did you see Jake Gyllenhaal posted a picture of Tom Holland talking about how he missed him, but it's just Tom Holland in his Spider-Man suit with the crap beat out of him. He's like bloody <laughs> nose and like looking at the camera like, what? It's pretty great. Fantastic. Everybody just seems they're, they're having good times on, mm -hmm. on all the various Marvel movies. I remember being in on set for Marvel Studios Thor Ragnarok and just... The joy around that production mm -hmm. was so palpable. 
and so fun. Man, it makes me so excited for for what's ahead. I mean, honestly, who does not want to play make-believe superheroes all right? day? It's so yeah. fun. You know, I, know. I, w- I was watching an old interview I did with Sebastian Stan where we talked about Marvel Studios' Avengers Infinity War. And he was just talking about how when he first got the robotic arm, you know, the the prosthetic arm, that he would be like, and like be doing kind of like robotic (laughs) movements. And I was just like, you are a child who is having fun. Like your inner child is just like having a blast. Yes, you're also like an acclaimed actor, but also kid having fun. Yeah. I always think of your interview with uh, Anthony Mackie when he was doing um, Spider-Man thwipping. Oh my gosh. I think I have a gif of that somewhere because it's just so good. Yes, playing trades. No one is having more fun than Anthony Mackie ever, period. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a fact. Fair. He is hilarious as a human yeah. being. Speaking of folks having the best time, let's talk about some comics and some creators who have switched roles a little bit. We know that Donny Cates has finished up his landmark run on Venom. We know that Al Ewing is finishing up his incredible run on Immortal Hulk. And uh, this week we learned that there's some switcheroo as these creators and other amazing creators are taking over the reins of various books. So Venom, there's going to be a new series written by Al Ewing with art by Ram V and Brian Hitch. And this is great because... Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman and everybody, their Venom run was so like, Mm -hmm. it it set up so much and it did so much for the Venom character. You got to go in a different direction. So I'm excited by what Al's got in store with Rom and Brian. And then on the Hulk side, Donny Cates has taken over Hulk and Ryan Otley is drawing it. And man, if you've seen the free comic book day image of Hulk that Ryan Otley has drawn, you know, that dude was born to draw the Hulk. Yeah. Oh my This gosh. is the Marvel Comics equivalent of that Spider-Man meme where they're both pointing at each other, <laughs> the two Spider-Mans. Yeah. Like they're just like trade, trade. Yeah. You can get the full details on Venom and Hulk and some other comics news on Marvel.com. Just go check it out. It's really cool. And the art is beautiful. But Ryan, you forgot to mention the most important comic this week. Yes. This week. The most important comic book, and the one that we need everybody to go out to your local comic book shop and pick up five copies of, is X-Force number 20. And you're saying, okay, cool. We love X-Force. It's great. It's Joshua Kassar's beautiful artist, Benjamin Percy, wonderful writer. Why would I pick this up in particular and get five copies? Because your friends at This Week in Marvel, Lorraine Sink, James Monroe, Igle Hart, and Ryan Panagos make appearances in this comic book. Um, I got to say, okay, Ryan, I know this is old hat for you because you're like in everything. You're in the MODOK show. You're in video games. You're a Lego dude. Like, I get it. But for me, little old Lorraine, never been in nothing. So this is my first in anything. I I did cry a little bit when I looked at it this morning. I'm not going to lie. I'm getting teared up right now talking about it. I'm very excited about it. That makes me so happy because I specifically (laughs) wanted to put you and James in this and like I wanted to be in it too, but like putting the three of us in it, asking, asking for us to get in it was like important for me. It makes me so happy. Honestly, like being a woman in comics, I don't always feel super visible and it's taken 10 years for anybody to notice, but it felt really, really cool. And so I'm really excited, but I'm going to stop crying now and we can move on with the news. No, I want all the tears. I want to soak up the tears. I want them to short out your microphone because uh, the tears are good and they're joyous. And you have a fabulous dress on in there. And one of the things I love, <laughs> that because jo- Josh drew it, 
he got like i've seen you make that one of the stand like the poses for photos <laughs> like you make that and at one point he's got me just like sipping on a a, a tiki drink which is <laughs> accurate and we're we're just three of many guests oh, yes. at the hellfire gala like it's I will say that there are many really cool people. If you look at the Hellfire Galley, you'll find Conan O'Brien. You'll find um, tons of Marvel Comics creators and editors and other celebrities. Tons and tons of people. So I was very excited for us to be invited. It was great. But yeah, Hellfire Gala kicked off this week in a number of titles, including X-Force and Marauders and um, Hellions. I We love comics. Like Lorraine and I just love comics and hellfire gala is really really good it's really really fun it if anybody doesn't know it's all one story across all the x-men titles throughout the month of june it all takes place at the same time you can read any of them or all of them or you know whatever you want and you'll get different perspectives if you have any interest in the x-men maybe you've not checked them out this is a really cool starting point because it's going to give you a lot of the drama and the intrigue and the relationships and stuff and yeah, it's really good. And I'm really excited for all of the Hellfire Gala-ness that's going to be coming around this whole month. You know, it is Hellfire Gala month, and every week there's going to be those awesome variant covers. There's going to be awesome story all leading up to big things for the X-Men. So go read that event because it's it's not just pretty clothes. It's also pretty clothes. All right, talk about pretty clothes. Let's talk about <laughs> Marvel Future Revolution because the characters in this game there's so many amazing costumes and different mm -hmm. things. And we've seen some of the looks so far in Marvel Future Revolution. You go to twitter.com slash Marvel Future Rev. But a lot of cool stuff is uh, is starting to get released about this game. I know people have been – people ask me every once in a while, like, when is there going to be more information? You helped reveal it to the world back right before the pandemic started in March uh, – February, March of 2020. And now it's it's rolling. So lots of cool things coming for Marvel Future Revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep your eyes peeled. Also, for Marvel Puzzle Quest, this week, Ronan the Accuser joins the game. Of course, there to make his judgment. Ronan the Accuser is like, you, you did it. You're bad. Um Ronan the Accuser would be a great like guest judge on uh, Drag Race. He's like, are you even trying? I'm accusing you of sucking. Like, he, <laughs> I don't know why I make Ronan so sassy, but like, he's very accusatory. So I'm just like, yeah, got to have a bad attitude. Why not? But he is going to have incredible Kree strength as he does in the Marvel Universe and a swift Cosmi Rod hammer in Marvel Puzzle Quest. So go get him in the game now. Yeah. And over in Marvel Contest of Champions, we know that next week on uh, the 10th of June, they're getting Purgatory. Purgatory is this twisted creature from an alternate timeline in which Morningstar was actually finally able to defeat Guillotine and steal the sword back. And so with the blade finally in her hand, she begins a bloodthirsty rampage, unlike any scene in a millennium. It's Purgatory! Can I tell you what I always think of with Marvel yes. Contest of Champions, which is very random, is our wedding planner who's lovely her husband is one of those like top tier marvel contest of champions players wow and we were chatting about oh yeah i love the game and she's like you don't understand what a big part of our lives it is it was in our wedding vows oh isn't that sweet like and i will allow you to play marvel contest of champions as much as you need <laughs> that's fabulous it really is um so yeah lots of game stuff i feel like june is just there's going to be more stuff, especially with Future Revolution. And who knows what else ahead. Last week, we had Tim and Eric on from Marvel Games. And they hinted that 
the future is looking pretty good. So stay tuned, true believers, for more from Marvel Games and everyone else. All right. Next up, Lorraine, uh, I think we wanted to talk about something really cool because Avengers Campus is coming so soon. And everybody could see the opening ceremony live from Disney California Adventure this week. Yes, last night, if you're listening to this on Thursday, they had the opening ceremony for Avengers Campus at Disney California Adventure Park. If you missed it, go check it out on the Disney Parks channels on social media. Yeah, it's cool. There's inside look at the land. There were cool guests. And for those of you who don't know what Avengers Campus is, get ready. It's open officially June 4th. It is this like amazing place where you can team up with the Avengers and their allies and live out your superhero dreams. You may encounter Iron Man, Black Panther, Black Widow, and more. There's the first Disney ride-through attraction to feature Spider-Man, which I can't wait to sling some webs at, and so much more. I need to be there right now. Yes. Summer is going to be awesome. We've still got more stuff we're excited about. Tell me about Gamora and Nebula, Sisters in Arms. It's a great new YA book. I actually read it two days ago. I sat down and I read the whole thing. It's a super quick read, even though it's not necessarily a short book, but it's written by Mackenzie Lee. I got to chat with her this week on Instagram Live. You guys can watch that over on the Marvel Instagram in the IGTV section of the channel. But it's such a great book. It's sort of like a space Western, and it's about Gamora and Nebula in their more younger years before Gamora has split away from Thanos when they're still kind of working under Thanos's tutelage and they just have this whole adventure where they're both on separate paths where they're both trying to get to the same kind of treasure and bring it back for their respective bosses but it's you know like fraught fun relationship between the two of them and like really you know we've seen the sort of story of like how Nebula has all of her enhancements and how Gamora has some of hers but this is sort of pre all that. So it's almost like a prequel feeling. It's really fun. The book is also written by Mackenzie Lee, who wrote Loki, Where Mischief Lies, which is a great book to read for Pride Month. It's it's a great book in general. It's, you know, teenage Loki in 19th century London, having lots of fun and kind of doing like murder mystery. But if you love Loki, get into it. But also Gamora Sisters in Arms, it's out now. If you guys want to pick it up wherever books are sold, it's a really fun read. I got to say that the the folks at Marvel who are working with teams to do YA books, to do middle grade books, to do more of the stuff from DK, like the like the mm-hmm. informational books, they're doing some great work. Oh yeah. Shout out to Sven and his team mm-hmm. over at Marvel cuz I saw did you see that they had a presentation of of like what's ahead and I was like they are rocking and rolling. There's some really great stuff. I, the mon- There's a monster book on the way that I'm very, very jazzed about. On top of, we recently we were talking about the magic book. Yeah, Doctor Strange, the Book of the Vishanti, a magical exploration of the Marvel Universe. It's coming out this fall, but it's going to be awesome. Yeah, so much cool stuff. If you like reading, get ready to just read. Yeah, <laughs> get ready to read, ladies and gentlemen. You know what? And if you don't want to read, if you're like, oh, my eyes are so tired from looking at them words, close your eyes and put on Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord, which is now live the first two episodes. You can get in your ear holes. Yeah. The show is really, really fun. It's got an awesome cast. It's a really fun adventure. 
And it's now available on SiriusXM or wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to SiriusXM.com slash Starlord1 right now to listen. So go check it out. Also, of course, there's Marvel's Declassified. There's a special episode this week, right? Yeah, we have our special episode with George R.R. R. Martin available wherever you get your podcasts. I know a lot of folks were waiting to hear it when they could listen to it uh, in their favorite players. So definitely go check out all episodes of Marvel's Declassified now, wherever, like a tin can, a shoe, one of those uh, little plastic lids that you put on a soda bottle. Yeah, when you get the plastic lid, you can also listen to the latest episode of Marvel's Pull List because we're talking about Hawkeye, My Life as a Weapon, the Matt Fraction, David Aha issue, the first couple of issues of that Mm -hmm. with uh, writer Joanna Robinson, who she's from Vanity Fair. She's terrific. I had a lot of fun talking with her about Hawkeye and the MCU and all kinds of stuff. So that's the latest episode of Marvel's Pull List. Lots of great audio for you this week. Man, that's also one of my favorite comic series of all time. It's Mm -hmm. so funny and so just excellent. All right, Lorraine, let's roll on with the show because it's time for our interview. Who are y'all talking with this week? We are talking with Kenneth Kenny Johnson, who is the creator and executive producer from the old school, the Incredible Hulk live action television series from the 1970s, long before I was born, thank God for me. Um, But it was so fun. James Monroe Iglehart is on this interview with me, and he was so excited about this interview because he has just been such a huge fan of the show since... He was a teeny kid, which is awesome. And also the show is just so iconic. I went back and watched some episodes that are just excellent. But man, Kenny Johnson has been in the biz for a lot of decades and he has stories. He talks about some crazy stuff from being on set and, you know, creating this landmark show. And he talks about his friendship with Stan Lee, which is really Mm, lovely. That's great. Also, he created the Bionic Woman, and he worked on Alien Nation. It's a crazy conversation, stories for days about old school 70s Hollywood action and the early days of the Marvel Universe. It's really awesome. That's great. Let's check that out right now. We are here with the one and only Kenneth Johnson. Welcome to This Week in Marvel. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I've always enjoyed my relationship with Marvel, particularly my pal Stan. Well, I can't wait to talk more about that. Definitely. And to that end, you know, we always like to ask, what is your Marvel origin story? How did you first encounter Marvel comics or stories? Um, I was uh, a writer, producer, director at Universal Studios, and I had written a number of spec scripts. I became a great writer of unproduced screenplays. Most of them are still on my uh, shelf, as a matter of fact. Uh, But one of them was uh, sent over to Harv Bennett, who was a guy producing Rich Man, Poor Man, a lot of miniseries. And he also had this show on the air called The Six Million Dollar Man. And they were uh, very eager to try to do more shows. They had just gotten a pickup for another season and they had practically no scripts. And he read my one of my spec scripts and said, I can't help you with that, but uh, how'd you like to bring me some ideas for six mil? So I came in and I said, well, isn't the obvious one the Bride of Frankenstein? And uh, he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've got this monster sort of man with uh, arms and legs that are weird and uh, a boop, 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 eye and all of that. Uh, shouldn't there be a mate for him, a bionic woman? 
And uh, Harv liked the idea. I wrote the uh, script for him, um, and it became a, a <laughs> took six mil into the top ten for the first time, I think. And suddenly um, they invited me to join Six Mil as a producer, and then quickly we spun off the Bionic Woman and uh, into a separate series. So for a while I was writing and producing both series at the same time, which if you'd like to talk about living in a garbage disposal. <laughs> and um, so, so I was enjoying a, a lot of success at Universal in the area of this sort of speculative, larger-than-life stuff. Uh, and I was invited by Frank Price, who was then heading Universal Studios. Uh, he said, yeah, I want to talk to you. So he brought me up to his office. And he said, listen, we've just acquired the rights to five of the Marvel comic superheroes. Which one would you like to do? And I said, gee, thank you, Frank, but none of them, you know, I, I am not a big fan of primary colors and spandex. And, uh, and I, you know, I just, I wasn't, no, thank you. I said, well, it's really, I can't see myself sitting down and having a, a cheeseburger with the, uh, the Human Torch or the Man from Atlantis or uh, Captain America. And then there was this other ludicrous comic uh, that I just couldn't even get involved with, with the big green guy. And uh, and so I was at home trying to figure out how to say no politely to Frank. Uh, but I called my pal Stephen Bochco, who had been a classmate with me at Carnegie. He'd actually helped me get my foot in the door at Universal. Steve was just a fledgling writer at Universal. This was long before he created uh, L.A. Law and NYPD wow. Blue and on and on and on and on and on. And, on. Wow. Um, and, uh, and he said, well, you know, you might be able to trade it off for something. And I said, well, I'm still mumbling. And... Um, I was in the middle of reading a book that I had never read uh, at home. Uh, it was a book that my wife Susie had given me, the most literate person I know, except for our daughter Katie. And it was a book called Les Miserables. So I had the, the idea of the fugitive kind of concept swirling around in my head. You know, and I thought, I suppose there is a way to take a little bit of Victor Hugo and maybe a little bit of Robert Louis Stevenson, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm -hmm. and, uh, and this ludicrous thing called The Incredible Hulk and put it together into a, a show that could actually work. So I just went to see Frank the next day, Frank Price at Universal, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, Frank, I think I could take The Incredible Hulk and make that work if we do it the way that I want to do it, if... It's my casting, and I don't get some actor thrust down my throat that I don't think is right. And if you all basically leave me alone. <laughs> and he said, Frank always had his cards very close to the vest. Well, okay, Ken, sounds good, sounds good, you know. But uh, I said, but wait, there's more. I said, I want something in return. And he said, well, what did you have in mind? You know? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I don't think that Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe has ever been done really well, uh, which is a wonderful novel written in the 1800s, a swashbuckling, romantic, knights and Robin Hood is a supporting player, you know, I and mean, it's like that kind of, and it was, I said, I'd love to do a, like a four-hour miniseries of Ivanhoe. He said, sounds good, Ken, you'll do The Incredible Hulk, and we'll get you four hours of Ivanhoe. Bingo. And that's how I got into it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and we, I wrote, the, I wrote the, the pilot script for The Incredible Hulk in seven days. Oh. We shot the white pages of my first draft, which means there was no changes. And the show was incredibly well received and incredibly popular, still is. Uh, asked me if my Ivanhoe ever got made. <laughs> I was going to ask you. Unfortunately, it, was, it came close several times at other places, but it never got made. But meanwhile... The Hulk went on, and I had a, a, a really 
wonderful time doing it because the first and only actor I ever sent it to was Bill Bixby. And <laughs> his reaction was kind of the same as mine. He said to his agent, I'm not even going to read something that's called The Hulk. And his agent said, yes, you are, Bill. And he read it and he called me and said, Kenny, this is Bix, can I come talk to you? And I said, sure, <laughs> sure. And I, I always used to say that when, when Bix came into an office, it was like the first eight bars of Tiger Rag. It was boom into the room, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and he was such a presence. He was incredible. And he got right in my face. Now, oh, this is what we're going to do. Are we going to do it like this? Is it going to be this serious? Am I going to suffer? Is it going to be drama? It's going to be. Okay, I really want to do it. But uh, will you stay with the show as long as I do? And somewhere in the back of my mind, I, I began to hear the music of Faust playing, you know, and is this, <laughs> you know, uh, is this my bargain with the devil, you know? But, uh, but I said, I shook hands and I said, yes, Bix, as long as you're with it, I will be with it. And, uh, and we made our deal and we went forward and we never had uh, a bad day together. We had a lot of knockdown, drag out arguments, but it was always about something that was of substance. It was never, you know, the Hollywood star, I'll be in, in my trailer with the vapors, you know, it was not like that at all. It was uh, about character and context and subjects and would Dr. Banner say this line? And uh, so, uh, you know, we were friends until the very end of his life. That's amazing. Seeing the fact that, that you know, nowadays, um, comic book IPs are everywhere. All, you know, every TV channel is trying to have one. Every movie is trying to make one. They're always trying to find something. When when this was brought to you with those particular Marvel characters, what was the comic book ratio to movie landscape like? I mean, was it just like nobody was doing anything, or was that like this was brand spanking new? It was pretty much zip. Of course, there had been Batman, but that was you know a very kind of '60s take, and here we were in the mid '70s, mid to late '70s. And um, uh, so there really, there really was nothing like that on TV. And I had not wanted to get involved with, uh, with the Marvel Universe just because um, I had been trained in the classic theater. I, I was not a graduate of a film school. I came out of uh, what is now the Carnegie Mellon Drama School. It was then Carnegie Tech. It was the premier drama school in the country. And it was the theater. And when we were there, I was the only one really at, that was at all interested in film or television. Uh, the rest of my classmates, except with the exception of Bochco, were very snooty about it. Oh no, we're doing the theater. We're not doing film of the God's sake, not television, you know? <laughs> and so I always intended to have a sort of a more eclectic career. But when you fall into creating the bionic, well, you do the $6 million man and creating the bionic woman. And, you know, I just didn't want to be pigeonholed into being the sci-fi guy or whatever. But uh, <laughs> lo and behold, and I've never, I've never really regretted it. I, I have managed to do a few other things that are not in the sci-fi or speculative fiction uh, area. But the fun of working with speculative fiction or uh, something like V, which, which I later created, is that it gives you the opportunity to work in metaphor and sort of mythology. And that's what uh, I realized that The Incredible Hulk was. It was really sort of one way or another, the, a, a retelling of Hercules or Heracles and the legends from the Greeks and the Romans. And it gave me the opportunity to explore how the Hulk 
as a concept could manifest itself differently in different people. And that's what we tried to do in, in as many of the episodes as possible. We'd never say, what's the plot of this episode? We say, what, what is this episode about? Mm -hmm. Because the Hulk in David Banner was, of course, anger. This was his enemy within. And we realized that there were lots of other enemies within that people have. It could be drink, it could be alcohol, it could be obsession, it could be greed, it could be any number of other things like that. Uh, and how, so we tried to fashion episodes that would explore a little bit more deeply uh, human nature. And also some of the, the, episode, the, the pieces of the doing the series that were the most fun for me was when the anger had subsided, but he was still this lumbering creature. Mm -hmm. You know, this yeah. Frankenstein food, good, except I never had the, uh, the Hulk talk because I didn't want to do food, good <laughs> kind of dialogue, you know. You've mentioned Frankenstein a couple of times now, and I remember in that pilot, there's that moment that feels so much like the old classic Frankenstein film yeah. when you see the girl by the lake. Right, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to stand it on its head instead of throwing a little girl into the lake as the monster did. Uh, I said, okay, we got to figure out a way to rescue her from the lake and have our creature be a hero. Mm -hmm. And there is actually one shot in that sequence that's the only shot that still exists of Richard Keel. Because my original casting for the creature was not Lou, it was Richard Keel. Really? Uh, really? Who, who later, you know, the seven foot guy that went on to fame as uh, with the steel teeth in yes. the, uh, Bond. He was right? Jaws. Jaws, Jaws and Bond. Bond, yes. That's wow. right, that's right, later on. And um, I had met Lou when we were in the casting process trying to find somebody. We, of course, we talked about Schwarzenegger. He was, he was busy at the time, I think, doing Conan. And also, he's not that tall. No. Uh, I mean, I'm six feet, and, and he's uh, Arnold, I don't think, is quite as tall as I am. Mm -mm, he's not. Uh, and, uh, but also, he was busy doing Conan. Uh, and I think it was Arnold, actually, that put us on to track of, of checking out Lou. So I had, I had met Lou, and, and he was a very sweet kid. He was only like 23, 24 years old, and uh, he'd had no acting experience at all. And I really felt that it was important that I have an actor in that role. So we, uh, we went with Richard originally. But after about a week or two of filming, we just decided he didn't look right and, and we couldn't really take clothes off of him and see the muscles that, uh, that people would be expecting. So I went back and, and met with Louie again and, and it's, it was hard to, to audition him as an actor because he didn't have any lines other than, you know, and um, we did some improvs together. I think I remember lying down on the floor with Louis uh, and us going through the scene of where Susan Sullivan is dying in his arms at the, at the end of the piece mm -hmm. to try to see what I could get. And I really felt that he could maybe, you know, with a little help uh, develop into, um, into a, somebody that could carry the role. And of course he did, <laughs> and, uh, and really splendidly. And uh, and also, you know, as you know, Louis is deaf, yeah, uh, and had been since he was about six years old, and uh, and it was it was challenging when we were doing it because when we were doing the scenes, he couldn't be wearing his hearing aids because no matter we tried to disguise them, but you, know, you could see them, you know. There were some places, like at the end of the pilot episode movie, uh, where he's in this burning building, stage 25, <laughs> almost burned down at Universal. And he, he's got to carry, pick up Susan Sullivan and carry him out, and there's fire all around him. And so what we had to do is we had to have uh, about 
four or five stunt guys spotted where we couldn't, the camera couldn't see them, but they could let Louie know if there was some kind of trouble because he couldn't hear us if we said, watch out. Wow. But, uh, but Louie really grew into the role and he's something extraordinary. Now, as you, as you said, because you were trying to create a, an original source with the Hulk, like you, you brought in the the gamma rays and the the green and the and I didn't want the green and I and I didn't want the green either. Really? I, I said, <laughs> of course not. I said, Stan, the color of rage is red. When you get angry, I said, what is this? The incre- the the, the uh, jealous Hulk, the envious Hulk. That's what's green. You're green with envy, but you're red with rage. And, and we went around and around, but they wouldn't let me go to red. So, and finding green was, it was extraordinarily difficult. There was no green pancake makeup. Mm. You, we had to, we eventually got from Germany, this grease paint, green grease paint, which is what we had to put on Louis for the, for the pilot in the first couple of movies until we, somebody actually manufactured the pancake that we needed. The problem with grease paint is that it comes off on everything you touch. Yeah. And there's in the second two-hour movie, Louis at one is is carrying Larry Laurie Prang through this swamp, and she was in like a pajama kind of outfit. We had 24 changes of costume for Laurie, and there were a couple of days we had to stop shooting because we had run out of pajamas. Oh. Uh, and, you know, so there's also a fight with a bear in that sequence, in that uh, second movie. Uh, and now you're talking to here to a guy who has a red green blind color blindness. Okay, I have trouble seeing green. <laughs> and, um, and so we'd be sitting, we were sitting in the dailies watching this fight with a bear. And every, and so every time they'd separate, everybody in the room was started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? They said, look at the bear. I said, I am looking at the bear. He said, they, don't you see that he's green now? <laughs> you know? so, so after every struggle with the bear, they had to clean off the bear before we could do the next scene. It was... Uh, I, I mean, I think there are so many moments from the series, too, now that are just so iconic. Like, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Did you know that that would be part of the zeitgeist? Seriously. Let me, it's very funny. That what you, what you saw in all the main titles where you saw Bill say that, that was take two. <laughs> On take one, Bill came out hustling Jack McGee, you know, saying, and really angry. And he was playing it angry. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like I said, cut, 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 stop, cut. And I went up to Bix. I said, Bix, it's a joke. He said, oh, <laughs> and then he went back and gave that performance that you see in there where he starts to go and stops and does it. So, you know, Mr. McGee <laughs> you know? and uh, and I and it played so well in the um, uh, when we had the screening for the cast and crew that I, I was remember being in the editing room with Alan Marks, uh, one of my longtime editors, and we were creating the main title. And I said, you know, we've got to put that line in because it's just, and it became sort of, you know, it, as you say, it found its way into the Zetgeist. And uh, uh, still to this day, I, I hear, you know, people saying that. And, uh, uh, and certainly it was not, I was not the first one to ever use that phrase. But in the context of the Hulk, of course, it was perfect irony and, uh, and Bix really nailed it. It's such a, it's such an iconic, line. I mean, so many people have used it from Saturday Night Live 
to even other cartoons, <laughs> other uh, other genres. It's just a great line. And it's become like a thing for the Incredible Hulk. It's like there were characters in the 80s that had catchphrases and that became his and it still lives in, you know, the Hulk's, you know, story forever. Mm -hmm. It's such a great moment. It's true, it does. And, and you've probably seen the uh, the takes that they've done on Family Guy. Yes. With it, if you haven't. <laughs> Yes. You know, I mean, they, they have a whole main title that's exactly frame for frame, our main yeah. title. You know? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and him walking away at the end with Joe Harnell's brilliant music. Yes, you know? that's, and, that, oh, uh, that is one of that my... That music, that too, music. is just iconic. Yeah, oh. it, it truly did become iconic uh, because particularly for the time, at Universal, almost every and most television in general, the end titles of all music was pretty much up and when Joe and I were talking about what to do at the end, I said, Joe, I don't want an orchestra. I said, it's, it's a lonely man. He's, he's alone and it ought to be a solo piece. And Joseph was a great, great pianist. And uh, yeah. I said, I think, it, I think it just ought to be you on the piano and just that. And so he played around for a long time with exactly what it should be. And I knew a fair amount about music. I, I had studied piano for about six, seven years when I was a kid, long enough for me to discover that as a pianist, I was a really good drummer. You yes. know? So, uh, so I became a percussionist, but, uh, but I had, knew how to read music and, and, and I had a sense of how music worked. And I remember sitting at the piano with Joe when we were just finally just finalizing the the actual notes, and I remember at one point uh, I said, "How about we use this note instead of that note?" And he looked at me like I was crazy, and and uh, and then we tried it, and suddenly that was the way it ended up. And after that, Joe always said, "You know, Kenny, you know just enough about music to be dangerous." <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I said, "Yeah, I guess, but uh, but it's true how that theme." I've heard, I've gotten emails from people all everywhere around the country and the world. Many of them have said, mentioned it being such an iconic new piece of music, but also how they have it as a ringtone on their <laughs> telephone. Joe had an incredible facility for that kind of thing. And, and also I realized, as, and it doesn't appear in the pilot movie, but when, as we started the series, I said, Joe, we also need a statement for the creature which was the signature piece that, you know, that happened. Also the white eyes uh, yes. was something I, well, I had done, um, when I was doing uh, the $6 million man, I wrote the, an, another two parter that sort of became its own little classic called the secret of Bigfoot. Yes. And, yeah. uh, where we hired Andre the giant, but I, uh, you know, I wanted, I was going to do Bigfoot, and I, and I said, how can I make him look different? Oh, I put white eyes on him. And it, they were so startling and creepy. Uh, as I was writing the Hulk, I thought, oh, you know the, what, that's a good thing because we need a. Uh, a point of no return. We need uh, something that will, will trigger that the audience knows, uh-oh, there's no going back, you know, <laughs> which gave us also an opportunity that we didn't have to see the full metamorphosis every time, which was so difficult to achieve within a, in a time before CGI or really even decent visual effects to, to have, make that transition from Bill to Lou. We really, in the pilot, we had to do it like they did the Wolfman. We put a little yeah. makeup on Bill and, and mm -hmm. shot a little film, and then we went off and he put more on and came back and shot more and then dissolve, 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 and it looks like the Wolfman, you know? 
so I didn't want to have to go through that kind of thing every time, but I realized that by having the white eyes, the key moment, then we could throw him into a closet. <laughs> and everybody knew what was coming. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was good. And my, I have a photo of, of me and Bix standing together and him with the white eyes and just grinning right into the camera. And... Um, that was the first, we were filming the pilot. We had just done a rehearsal and set up with Susan and, and Bix. And I heard from makeup that the white eyes had come in. And I said to Bill, hey, look, why don't you go down, go down and put them on. I got a few minutes to set up, see what they, how they feel. And let me know what you think. And I'm busy. And a few minutes later, I heard this voice say, hey, Kenny. And I turn around and walking up toward me out of the distance was Bill Bixby, big television star, <laughs> with this huge grin on his face and these white eyes. <laughs> and, I remember looking, and I remember looking at him and saying, son of a b this show is a hit. <laughs> I mean, it must have been really wild at the time because I think, you know, now we're so spoiled with CGI. Anybody yes. can do anything very easily. You don't have to worry about how you practically shoot that on a set at all. Was it very inventive on set? Were you constantly just trying to be like, how do we get him to lift a tree today? How's he going to pick up this car? <laughs> you know, there's so many things. Exactly. And, and also how you do it on an episodic television budget. That right. was another big problem, you know, because yeah. uh, when in, in those days, a one hour episodic television show was shot in six days. That was oh it, you know, and uh, the six million dollar man, all that stuff was six days. When we did the Bionic Woman, and they wanted to make it into a series, I had to go to Frank Price and say, "Frank, you want Lindsay in every shot? She won't have the stamina to be able to sustain a six-day shoot. It's going to be a seven-day shoot." And Frank said, "No, Ken, you don't understand. Episodic television is shot in six days. An episodic episodic television show," he said, "is like a sonnet, Kenny. Uh, a sonnet is sixteen lines, no more, no less. If it's more than sixteen lines, it's not a sonnet." You know, I said. Frank, he said, no, no, it has to be six days. So we always boarded the show in six days for the Bionic Woman. And it always took seven days to film it. And we were always over budget because of that. But there was no way. So now we're doing The Incredible Hulk. At the, the, the CBS finally decided to buy it. It took us, Frank, Frank Price and I sat in an office with the head of CBS at the time, the president, who even after we did the pilot and the two-hour follow-up movie, he didn't get it, couldn't conceive how it could be a series. And Frank and I were sitting there shoulder to shoulder for hours trying to convince this guy, just give it a short order, try it, you'll see, you know. And, uh, and you know, we finally did. So CBS bought it as a series. And then I had to go to Frank and say, listen, and by then, incidentally, uh, all of the shows in television were being shot in seven days, right? And I said, Frank, you want a series of The Incredible Hulk? Yeah, 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 we do. It's gonna be great. I said, can't happen in seven days. <laughs> he said, no, 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 Ken, you don't understand. I said, it's over, Frank. <laughs> you know. So it was, uh, it was, the Bionic Woman was the first seven-day show in Hollywood, and the Incredible Hulk was the first eight-day show. And you're right, Lorraine, it, it was challenging to try to do because it was a lot, there were a lot of big effects involved and a lot of time that we were, because safety is a big important factor. My, my rule of thumb is safety is no accident. 
which sounds like a joke, yeah. and it is, but it isn't, you know? No, <laughs> Trying to figure out how to engineer things so that they could look like more than they were. Louis turning over a car. No, actually, the car is being pulled over from the other side, but we make it look as though, or we get it right to the balance point where the car is just balanced, and all he has to do is go eek, and it goes, you know? But uh, all of that stuff, uh, when, when, uh, when he has to fish the little girl out of the lake, Lorraine, in the pilot you were talking about, and he uses a tree to do it, the, the tree had a pedestal that we had to hide behind uh, Louis's leg while he was, you know, it, it was, it was incredibly, you should pardon the pun, difficult, and uh, uh, and and also just because we didn't have, you know, a lot of money. You definitely forged a friendship with Stan Lee in his time. What was it like getting to know him and and working with him over the years? Stan was great. We first met on the Hulk. You know, I told him the, the you know the kinds of things that I wanted to do, and Stan was actually you know was really cool with that. Uh, he fought me and uh, on the on the Red Hulk, but uh, it was really the studio that more more that called that one. But we hit it off really well. I mean, Stan was a brilliant guy and so fast and so funny and always charming and always supportive. And uh, when we did the second movie and we did the bear fight sequence, he said, God, I love the new script. It's great to fight with a bear, the whole fighting with a bear. It's great, it's great, but it ought to be a robot bear. <laughs> I had to say, Stan, now let me explain why it can't be a robot bear. I said, well, why? You said you could do it. I said, it shouldn't be a robot. We said, you do the bionic shows and you've got robots go. I, yes, but we're in a robotic world when we're dealing with uh, the $6 million man. They're cyborgs. They're part robot themselves. And he said, well, yeah, but I think it would be so great. I said, Stan, listen, an audience will only give you so many buys. They will only buy so much. Now, Stan, we are asking the audience to buy that Bill Bixby metamorphoses into Lou Ferrigno. And that's a really big buy. And now if you add a robot bear on top of that, you're over the top, at least for the adult audience. And I, it, and to me, that was the audience I was going for. Our largest audience, incidentally, was always adult. Even after I told him that, we went around and around and about a week later, I had decided I was going to take Lou to New York City because I wanted to run him right through Times Square, put him in the middle of the real, real, real world. So we're doing that. Me and Louie and a, and a steady cam guy running right down Broadway uh, in the freezing March weather. Oh, my God, it was cold. And when we broke for lunch, Stan's office was over on the Avenue of the, uh, of the Americas on 6th Avenue. And it was only a couple of blocks. And I said, I can't be this close and not go say hello to Stan, even though we'd been at odds about the bear. So I went over to his office and he heard I was there and, and he came storming out of his office. I said, did you get my letter? I sent you a special delivery letter about the bear thing. And I said, oh, okay, okay, okay. What did it say? He said, it said you were right and I was wrong. I said, <laughs> okay, Stan, I'll take that. And that's the kind of guy he was. I was so flattered when more than once he said that he wished I had done all of his comic creations uh, because he was so fond of what we had done together uh, on the Hulk. And uh, uh, I was with him at the wonderful celebration we had for him uh, down in Hollywood barely a year before he died. But Stan, Stan will never die, <laughs> you know, as long as somebody remembers you you'll live and Stan's going to live forever. Very true. So I, I have to ask you, what do you think or hope is the legacy left by your show, The Incredible Hulk? 
Well, I, th I think that um, uh, the thing that's always been the most important for me in my work is, is a sense of humanity. It's a sense of tre treating people the way that you would like to be treated. It sounds corny when we say the golden rule, but goodness gracious, wouldn't it be a better world if that was the way it was? And, I, and I've also, throughout my career, had a real desire to try to chip away wherever I could at any form of intolerance and prejudice. And, uh, and I think that some of that is, is combined into the Hulk, certainly into, uh, into my later work. And overall, I, I've always sort of striven for that sense of trying to have, build as much humanity into, uh, into my work as I possibly can. The most rewarding thing was the, the, the story that we got to tell and that it did reach out and touch people the way that it did. Wow. Thank you so much for talking with us. Um, this has been just incredible. And I know I grew up watching the Bionic Woman and <laughs> the Incredible yeah, Hulk. And, and James, I'm going to put you on the spot because James was losing his god dang mind when we were talking about getting to have a chance to to talk to you because he is a legit super fan of the show and your work. So I'm just putting you on the spot, James. It's true. It's very true. I, I watched The Incredible Hulk like religiously. So thank you very much, Kenny. Everybody go check out KennethJohnson.us. Definitely. And all of the amazing things that he does. And thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been my pleasure. I'll, I'll be here anytime you want me. Take care. All right, you guys did a great job talking with Kenny Johnson. Thank you to him for coming on the show and chatting about The Incredible Hulk. We have some cool community recollections about The Hulk show in a couple minutes. But first, we got to let everybody know what we are talking about next week. Next week, we're having on an actor, mm -hmm, an mm -hmm. icon, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. an important part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a wonderful conversation. It was really fun to see him and talk to him again, even over Zoom, but it's been a while and it was really terrific. And just thinking about it, 10 years of Loki. That is truly wild. And in light of having on Mr. Hiddles himself, I think we should ask our friends and fans out there. What moment from Loki's history has been your absolute favorite so far? Yeah, you can tweet your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. Email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Of course, please make sure to tell us it's okay to read on the show. Lorraine, do you have a favorite Loki moment or thing that you would answer here? I, th I think... You know, Marvel Studios Avengers, when he tells everyone to kneel, is just, like, mm. iconic. But also, paired with that is his, when he came out in costume at San Diego Comic-Con oh, and told yeah. the audience to kneel. That was just, like, the cherry on the best cake. That's got to be such a thrill, to do that in front of 6,000 people. Oh. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this. There's so many great moments. He's such a, an amazing actor. He really nails the role. I think of like the moment with Odin when he sort of realizes what's going on mm -hmm. in the first Marvel Studios Thor movie. Yeah, that that might just so emotional and so good. Mm -hmm. There's tons of things. I think though now there's a moment in the first episode. There's a sequence where that might, you know, yeah, 
that I know the be... one you're talking about. I was yep. thinking of that too. But no spoilers. You'll have to no. just wait for Marvel Studios Loki yeah. to premiere on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, and it's just a few days away. But let's get into our community section. Let's talk about what we're talking about this week. We asked folks, what was your favorite thing about the incredible Hulk television show from the 1970s? And you guys had some great answers. So let's get into it. First up is from David Goodner at R.D. Goodner, who says, My name is David, and when I was a kid, I automatically liked any character named David. I also wanted to be a scientist. So a guy named David who was a scientist and also had superpowers was the best thing ever. Uh, yeah. Of course, he's talking about in the TV show, Bruce Banner was named David Banner. And um, yeah, that's I, I love how, you know, like the things that connect us to the things we love can be so random, but then they stick with us for most of our lives. I know it's it's such a funny kind of like Marvel sacrilege because there's so many, you know, Stanley is so known for his alliterative names mm -hmm. like Bruce Banner. And I love that Kenny Johnson was like, nope, that's a comic book name. Make it David. <laughs> See you later to give it that television realism. Yeah. Next up, we have Alf at F. Niala, who says, I loved the small-scale stories that followed Banner. Hulk was strong and angry, but not strong enough to destroy planets. He was a vagrant and aimed to still help people. Small-scale stories, but the stakes were still high. Yeah, I love that. I love the sort of the, you know, it's like a lone gun kind of story, you know, in the style of Westerns going town to town on the mm -hmm. run to help people. It, it really is kind of a classic story, but it is it is really fun. Yeah. We've got one in here from Matt Smith at msmith1337 who says, probably the bear toss from the <laughs> Death in the Family episode. Come on. That was your favorite. On. It is. Brian? It's so good. I, I hope you, Matt, got to listen to this episode so you could hear Kenny Johnson's story about the bear. <laughs> It is ridiculous. So great. Uh, Rob Wilmot at Rob Wilmot UK said it was serious and you really felt sad for his situation. I will always remember a mannequin or a waxwork model episode. They appeared to come alive. Mm. It freaked me out as a kid. Yeah. A real Doctor Who moment. Yeah. Uh, Ross at RP Hutch 1975 says the transformation when his eyes went that color you mm -hmm. knew it was on like Donkey Kong and I like the theme <laughs> music it had a melancholy about it suited to the storyline mm -hmm. Jacob Whalen at Jacob Thundercat says one of my favorite moments is the lonely man theme it's just a nice piece of music I often find myself humming the tune when I'm walking alone ah! <laughs> It's amazing. Um, it is an iconic <laughs> piece of music, though. Really I, I sort of love that it's so iconic that it's almost become parody. It's so great. Yeah. Stephanie Washington at SNW underscore June Girl says, of course, whenever you heard Dr. Banner say the line, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, which so iconic as well. I know. I know. Totally iconic. And from that show specifically, Callum Webster at Callum Webster says, that it had a cameo appearance from the man who created the character and came up with the stories, the dynamic driving force and lead writer at Marvel, the prolific Jack Kirby. Yeah, I, I did not know that, but that's that's a good, good one. Maximilian J. Power at Why God Why 305 <laughs> says, Bixby's enduring charm in conveying Banner's strife. One transformation was brought about in a phone booth because he didn't have 25 cents and I totally bought it. Yeah. Remember remember phone booths? Wow, that's a throwback, isn't it? 
Um, oh, we got an email here from Jeff Cope, which said, I loved the Hulk TV series. I watched it first run with my family back in the day. I was already a huge fan of the Hulk comics and loved the show, though I admit I was disappointed that Hulk didn't talk at all. But one thing I loved was after seeing a still photo in a magazine and realizing that Lou Ferrigno wore little green booties, I couldn't unsee them. So I would look for them at each episode. Weird. I know. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so good. Jeffrey Grant at Jeffrey B. Grant says that I got Lou Ferrigno to sign my copy of the Incredible Hulk 102 at Dragon Con a few years ago. And he posted a picture of the signed copy so of the book, which is rad. That's great. Uh, next up, Tony at T. Bizzleworth said, sorry, I missed out on a message for episode 500. I love the podcast and look forward to it on my busy Friday. So allow me to be the first to congratulate you on episode 501. Oh, thanks, Tony. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Uh, we got a Facebook message in here from Jenny Huang, who says, congratulations on the 500th episode. I've enjoyed the podcast every Friday since April of 2020. Thanks for sharing the week's news all about Marvel. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah. All righty. Ooh, we got some big boy emails in here. Let's get into it. Danny Walner wrote us, hello. I felt like I had to write in after hearing Lorraine lovingly poke fun at Ryan after he suggested someone might have been introduced to Marvel through underwear, of all things. Mm -hmm. Ryan mentioned this during an interview with Tim and Eric on the 500th episode of TWIM, although I would probably typically side with Lorraine. Mm. I know for a fact that some people are fans because of undies, because apparently I'm one of them. A ha. famous story in my family is that I was potty trained because of the type of underwear I had. It seems not much was working, but once my mom bought me Spider-Man underwear, I was good to go. She says, I told her I was very serious about not dirtying Mr. Peter Parker. I will admit, I am told I did watch Spider-Man and his amazing friends from time to time, but I have no recollection of that. I do, however, definitely remember my Spider-Man undies. So I think it's safe to say that underwear can indeed get you into the Marvel Universe. Thanks for all you do. I love the show. Also, Cyclops is the best. He has to put on the big boy pants maybe spider-man underwear when everybody else just wants to mope around i appreciate you scott and even if ryan and lorraine don't <laughs> that is a great story yeah i i take it all back underwear are welcome in the marvel mm -hmm. universe i may have to use that as a potty training tool for Catherine grace because she loves spider-man she loves her baby if i can focus on <laughs> on that we'll see so thank you for that message danny uh, i'm glad to hear that story all right we've got one more amazing email here and it's from our pal ron aka that one nerd ron he says hi ryan lorraine and james 500 episodes as i'm writing this i'm listening to the 500th episode and just the fact that you've reached this milestone is just absolutely bonkers and as ryan would say a triple d a ding dang delight I started listening to the podcast late at the tail end of when Ben Morse was co-hosting with Ryan before Ben left and Lorraine became the new co-host. It's been such a relief to listen to the podcast week to week to learn everything going on in the world of Marvel from comics, movies, games, toys, and all things Marvel that it becomes a great escape from the world, but not the world outside my window. The best parts of the show is when the show can go sideways at any time because both <laughs> Ryan and Lorraine and the times when Jane comes on is absolutely a show there's so much from the show that i gain if i'm ever missing anything from what's going on at marvel as for my favorite episode it's just too hard to pick just one but if there are any episodes that stick out it's been the interviews with elizabeth henstridge from marvel's agents of shield clark gregg also from marvel's agents of shield former MythBuster and now iron man suit maker adam savage c3po himself anthony daniels and all of marvel's creators and writers 
but the greatest guest of all is probably one. Wh- who? What is this? A British kitty in the city. Ah, yes. It just makes my day to hear. Le- I mean. I mean British kitty in the city. Come on the show as the kitty is now part of the Marvel Universe. Hooray. <laughs> the best moments of this podcast also come from the moments of being able to see both of you, Ryan and Lorraine at cons. Remember those? Soon. Because both of you bring absolute joy to the crowd and holy moly, the triple duty of having to do the convention and record a podcast and interview people. Whew. Anyway, thank you all for making this podcast a momentous occasion. And yet, cheers to another 500 more. Ron, thank you. Uh, we've seen Ron at many shows, many conventions. It's uh, great to have an email from you, bud. Wow. Well, now I have a new goal. Um, mm. Now that I've been in a comic, British Kitty in the City needs to be in a comic. Yes. <laughs> How do we get him in? It's me. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for this mayhem this week. <laughs> More mayhem to come. This episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Joshua Kassara, Guru EFX, Ben Percy, Mark Basso, Lauren Amaro, CB, Joe Caramagna, and absolutely everyone else who worked on X-Force 20 for making me and Ryan and James's day go pick up X-Force number 20, please. And then send us pictures. Enjoy the Hellfire Gala, everybody. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel. Your universe.